We say God would just rivet our hearts with this word. Let me pray. Lord, I acknowledge even right now of how dependent I am upon You and how dependent we all are. God, to to discern Your Word and to understand it and to embrace it. Lord, I pray that the the Word spoken here over this next hour might come into our hearts and that they might thrill us with joy of all that You've done for us in Christ. God, I think of this most difficult book, the book of Leviticus, and would pray that we would see in it the glories of Jesus. I pray that the shadows would come alive and that we would see indeed, in fact, the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. So, Lord, we want Him exalted today, not our own work or not our own effort or not our own achievements and accomplishments, but may all glory come to Him. May your Spirit come now and teach us and guide us in all truth as He guided the early apostles. Lord, may your name be hallowed this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was a freshman in college. I uh, remember taking a philosophy class. This was like one of the first classes I took in college. And I remember how we read Plato's Republic. Have any of you read Plato's Republic at all? A few of you. A few of you. We focused, I think it was maybe chapter 8 or chapter 7, I can't forget what it was, focusing upon Plato's allegory of the cave. And uh, in this allegory, Plato tells of a cave in which are seated some prisoners whose legs are chained and whose neck are chained in such a way that they can never leave the cave. And they can never even turn their heads around to look behind them, but they are forced to look forward upon this wall. And these prisoners have known nothing else in their life but that very fact. Chained, looking at this wall. And behind these prisoners burns a fire, big and bright, and cast shadows upon a wall that are cast because of a wall that sits between the prisoners, and this fire. And on this low wall, there are marionette players which are able to use puppets to cast shadows upon this wall upon which these prisoners watch. And, and in these shadows, these puppets are seen to be holding objects right, of animals, wood and stone. They are images of men and people and at times they even speak to one another. It's these, these puppets then speak with one another, right? Coming from behind them, the the echo would be such that it would echo off the wall in front and almost to these prisoners would seem as if the sound or the noise of these puppets came from in front of them. Now, you listen to that and you think about that. Now, that's a, a strange story, isn't it? Kids, you think that's a strange story? Can you picture it in your mind? On your notes, I even have a picture there of what it looks like. But it was an allegory. And Plato used this allegory to speak about ultimate reality and what merely appears to be reality. And the point of the allegory is it causes us to think about how these prisoners would perceive reality. All they ever knew was these shadows upon the wall. And as they spoke with one another and talked with one another about existence and things, we can easily see how they would be convinced that these, these dancing about shadows on the wall would be reality. And as they would hear the, the voice of these shadows talking with one another, actually coming from back here, we, we might get a sense of how they can clearly understand, oh, that's Boris, right? And, and that's Junius. And they're speaking with one another. And, you know, they hand an object to one another, say a ball or a book. And, and they come to think of that, that uh, image upon the wall as a, as a book or a ball that's passed between them. That would be their reality. Now, suppose... As Plato talks about, these chains are taken off of them at some point. They can stand up, they can turn around, and they can see for the first time what was behind them. Now, what kind of experiences might they have? Looking at the fire, and then seeing the low wall, which acts as a stage for these shadows, and the puppets 
which cast their shadows upon the wall. What would be going through their minds? I think soon that they would come. Maybe it would take a while. It would be a total shift. It would be a, a transformation in their minds to realize what was taking place. But after some contemplation, they would probably be able to come to understand what was reality and what was a shadow. Well, this morning, we have the opportunity to enter into another shadow land. Not the allegory of the cave, but the book of Leviticus. If you've ever read the book of Leviticus, you know that it contains many things which are pretty foreign to us. You know that it contains talk about sacrifices and priests and food which is clean and food which is not clean and impurities from bodily discharges and festival days and and feasts and Sabbath days and articles of the tabernacle and evaluations and all these types of things which are foreign to us in 21st century America. But the crucial thing for us to know, even from the start of my message this morning, is that all these things are really shadows of a greater reality. Oh, they may look like priests and they may look like sacrifices and they may look like ceremonial days and indeed they are, just as if the prisoners in the cave saw real shadows. But we need to realize that the Apostle Paul tells us that they are merely shadows. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. <clears throat> Paul writes, Therefore, let no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying these things in the Levitical law, like food and drink and feasts and festivals and Sabbath days, are shadows upon a wall of a cave which are being cast from the form which is Jesus Himself. As we look at them dance and prance about the wall of the cave, right? We need to keep in our mind, right, the, what the greater reality of these things is actually behind us. In other words, Jesus is the reality. The food and the feast and the festival and the Sabbath days are shadows which give testimony to the reality. That's what Paul's saying. On several other occasions, the New Testament uses the same language. It's not just Paul and Colossians. To the writers of the Hebrews, it says the same thing. Listen to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> Though there are those who offer gifts, he's talking about priests, offering the gifts according to the law, and these priests merely serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. In other words, as these priests would would do their business, right? Offering up these animals and these sacrifices, they were serving a shadow of the heavenly realities. That's what Hebrews 8 says. Hebrews 10, which Gordy read for us this morning, says the law has only a shadow of the good things to come. It is not the very form of things. Right? And, and you begin to put these Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 and Colossians 2 passages together. You see that the book of Leviticus has an ultimate reality to which they're pointing, which isn't even contained in the book of Leviticus. The reality behind the book is Jesus. These things in Leviticus are merely shadows. They're shadows not in the sense that they have physical resemblance between Jesus and these things. It's not quite exactly like a, a fire and casting a shadow, you know, and you do your, you know, your dog or whatever, or your, your bird flying. It's not exactly the image nor is it even the sense that in every last detail of the book of Leviticus has an exact one-to-one -one correspondence with Jesus. I think this personally is where some people go astray in their interpretation of Leviticus. Trying to get so down into all the nitty-gritty details. I'm not sure that all the details have exact correspondence with Jesus. But I do believe that these are shadows in the sense they give a veiled testimony in the generalities of things to Jesus who was who Jesus was and the work to which Jesus would do. And as we look at these shadows this morning, they're going to help us to see the reality of Jesus. And there are many ways in which Leviticus anticipates the life of Jesus. I mean, we have all these priests. All the priests of the Old Testament were shadows of Christ 
who is our great high priest. They approximate him in some shallow and small way. But it's ultimately Jesus who is our great high priest. All of the sacrifices of the Old Testament were mere shadows of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They all in some minuscule way showed and gave testimony to the great sacrifice of Jesus. The Day of Atonement was the one day in the year in which the Israelites were promised to be clean from their sins. That was merely a shadow of the forgiveness that Jesus would obtain for us on the cross. One sacrifice having ability to atone for many, many people. And the repeated regulations of the need of the people to be holy when approaching the Lord was a shadow of how Christ would make this possible through those who believe in Him. Right? So all these are shadows pointing to Him. And this is a great burden of my message this morning. I want for you to see Jesus more clearly than ever before. I want you to see His role. I want you to see what He came to earth to accomplish. And I want for you to see Him as more precious than ever because that is the thrust of the book of Leviticus for us today. The shadows giving us an insight into who Jesus was. And before we actually dive into the text, right, I want to ask about one more question. Right, you've heard the question asked, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Right, you've heard that question before. I want to ask you this question. What came first, Jesus or the book of Leviticus? Which came first? Now, in some sense, you might say, well, the book of Leviticus, because Moses wrote it in 1400 B.C., and Jesus didn't come until 1,400 years later. In one sense, you might be right. But really the correct answer is that Jesus came first and then the book of Leviticus. And this is an important observation because this is it's that Leviticus is written to anticipate what Jesus would be and what Jesus would do for His people. It wasn't as if God first established the Levitical system as a way of religion to make the people of Israel right with Him. And then later, God saying, Oh, you know what? I set up these priests so as to kind of intercede for... You know, I could send my son. I could send Jesus. And He could be this priest. Yeah, that would fit perfectly. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that works great. I love how that worked out. Or, He didn't say sacrificing for sins. Hmm. That's the way people are forgiven. In the, you know what? Maybe if I send Jesus, He'll be the sacrifice just the same ways. No, it was different. It was opposite. God knew what Jesus would come and do. But He gave us Leviticus and He gave the people of, Le- of Israel Leviticus so that They might understand when Jesus came, what it was He was doing, right? In other words, God wanted to establish some systems of thought to be ingrained in the minds of the Jewish people so that they would understand what God requires of us. For instance, God first established in Leviticus a sacrificial category in the minds of these Israelites. So they might clearly understand that every sin requires a sacrifice, If you sin, you need a sacrifice. In fact, Hebrews says, according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. The writer got it exactly right. When you look at the law, you can say, everything is cleansed before God by blood. This wasn't an accident that the writer of the Hebrews wrote this or came to understand it. This was God's intent and God's purpose. He placed deep into the minds of the hearts of the people that day after day after day that they would see these animals being slaughtered. They would know very well that it was because of their sin that these animals were putting to death. And that because when you sin, you need a sacrifice. And God was preparing the people for the great sacrifice to come. Regarding the establishment of priesthood, God certainly wanted to ingrain in the minds of the people how much they needed a priest to go to God on their behalf. I mean, it wasn't the people who offered sacrifices. It was the people who gave the sacrifice to the priest and then the priest went and offered it up for God. Sometimes the priest even went and prayed for them for God. God wanted to ingrain this in the people that you need a mediator between me and you. And in the Old Testament system, it was a priest who would go and speak on behalf of the people to God because 
God knew that He would bring the one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we would see Him as a mediator between us and them. And I think likewise about the Day of Atonement. He wanted, God did, the Jewish people to understand that a single sacrifice can atone for a multitude of sins. It wasn't always a a one-to-one correspondence between one sin and one sacrifice, one sin and one sacrifice. No, on this day, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and offered up his sacrifice, he offered up one for himself and for his family, and the second one, he offered up one sacrifice for the nation. And I believe that that one day was intended for the Israelites to reflect upon how it could be that a Messiah could come and offer one sacrifice for all time for the people. These things in Leviticus, I'm saying, were preparatory. God was establishing categories in the minds of the people so they could understand fully the role of Jesus when He came. And the book of Leviticus was anticipating the day when Jesus would come to fulfill the law as our great high priest, to offer up His own personal sacrifice so as to present us to God, completely blameless and holy in His sight. Hope that makes sense. It's a long introduction. Let's get into the text. I invite you to open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 19. I want to look just at one verse this morning. This has been my pattern as we've been going through the Bible this year, is to take one verse and then from that verse kind of launch out into the entire book or passage that we're looking at. So I'm going to pull in illustrations from the book of Leviticus from this one verse in Leviticus 19, verse 2. And I'm bringing this verse to bear because many consider this to be the key verse in the entire book. And I've tried in my exposition here through the Bible these past months, and we'll try in future days, is to really focus your attention upon key verses in the Bible that really help open up and expand what is the key to these passages in these books. Let me pick up the context in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. I want to focus our attention this morning on that phrase. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. My message this morning has two points. God is holy, and you need to be holy. It's kind of taking that phrase in reverse. I think that makes the most sense for us to take it. God is holy and you need to be holy. You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So let's look at that first point. God is holy. This fact is affirmed many times throughout the Scripture. In fact, even in Leviticus, on four other occasions, this phrase is almost said verbatim. Leviticus 11, verse 44 says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. The next verse says, I'm the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 20, verse 26, You are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. Leviticus 21, verse 8, I, the Lord, who sanctifies you, am holy. Time and time again, We hear in Leviticus that God is holy. It's repeated throughout Scripture. I mean, all through biblical history, men and women alike have all affirmed the fact that God was holy from Job to Joshua to Jeremiah, from Hannah, the mother of Samuel, to the entire city of Beth Shemesh, from King David to the psalmist Asaph to the prophet Isaiah. They all made explicit statements saying that God is holy. Holy is He. In some way, some form, or another, direct statements. And indeed, the glimpse we get into heaven itself affirms of God's holiness. Isaiah chapter 6, Revelation 4, we hear the angelic beings never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That is the, the redounding praise of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So naturally it begs the question, right? What does it mean that God is holy? Let's focus our attention first upon what the word holy means. In Hebrew, it's the word kadosh. That's the adjective. Or if it's a noun, it's kadash. If it's a verb, it's kadash. Right? Just sum up. Kadash 
That's what it means. It means holy. That's the word. In my study this week, I found 90 times in which it was used in the book of Leviticus. That's more than in any other book of the Bible. 90 times this word holy is used and at its root, it has this idea of being separated or apart or, or sacred or consecrated. That something's considered holy if it's set apart and dedicated to be used in the service of the Lord. I mean, think about the things in Leviticus. The, the priests were a group of people who were set apart to serve the Lord in the temple. They were holy to the Lord. The, the garments of the priests, the, the clothes that they wore were set apart for only the priests to wear. There were holy crowns, holy tunics, and holy garments. The sacrifices offered up were called holy sacrifices, right? Sacrifices set apart for the worship of God. Sometimes people presented holy gifts to the Lord, right? These are things that they gave which were dedicated and set apart for God's use. There were places in the temple that were designated as holy places. And what made them holy was that they were set apart for specific duties as it relates to the Lord. Days of celebration were, were called holy convocations. right? Separated days that would be devoted to the worship of God. And the behavior of the Israelites was to be different from the other nations. They were to be holy. They were to be set apart. They were to be different. Sanctified. Set apart. That's what holy means. Right? I hope, I hope that helps you. But then we think about what does it mean that God is holy? And we've got to take this word holy to an entirely different level because we're no longer talking about things just dedicated to the service of God. Now we're talking about God Himself being set apart from us. And that's what, what holiness means. It means God being set apart from us. And I just say that the character of God the being of God is so high above us that we can't even grasp it. So I'm straining this morning, searching for words. And I know with my limited intellect, I'm not capable of describing to you in my own words and my own thoughts of what this means. So I've invited some friends to come who have helped me to see a little bit what God's holiness is. My first friend is A.W. Tozer. He said this about the holiness of God. He said, catch this, quite literally, a new channel must be cut in the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth that will heal our great sickness to flow in. We need to have new categories in our minds to really understand God's holiness in order to get this apart. He says, we cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. And that would be my tendency. Just think about, think about something holy and pure and then raise it to as high as you can think about. God's holiness, Tozer continues, is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. And that's not what divine holiness is. It's like beyond that. We know nothing like a divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. Holy is the way God is to be holy. He does not conform to a standard. He is the standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that's incapable of being other than it is. Can you see that in your mind? Kids, can you see it in your mind? I hope so, because I can't. But that's what holiness is. In fact, R.C. Sproul, another friend of mine <coughs> who's helped me with this book, it's called The Holiness of God. It's a book that impacted me greatly in my early Christian life. In fact, I remember that book kind of circulating around our family and my brother not quite hearing things right. He said, the Polishness of God. It's the holiness of God. He thought it was the Polishness of God. We said, no, no, no. The Holiness of God. It's a great book if you're interested in... Uh, really trying to grasp what this means, R.C. Sproul in that book said this, when the word holy is applied to God, it does not sing, signify one single attribute of God. The word is used as a synonym for His deity. That is the word holy calls attention to all that God is. 
In other words, R.C. Sproul is saying that holiness is the essence of God. An utter distinctness, right? His, his divinity, His deity, that's wrapped up in His purity of what holiness is. And I simply say that God, in seeking to describe holiness, is, is so different than we are, but... Perhaps the best way to talk about holiness is to speak about his purity, right? Because whenever there's an encounter between a man and God, we find the man on his face before a holy God, entirely in awe of his sin and broken, right? That's the case of Isaiah, a prophet, a righteous man, probably the most righteous man in the land. When he saw the throne of God, he said, Woe is me, for I am, remember the word? Ruined. I'm undone. That's what that means. And then, this is astonishing, this is the one who spoke for God. He said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Right? In other words, when this righteous man Isaiah compared himself to the Lord, he was utterly broken. That helps give you an insight of the purity of God. But see, God's holiness goes far more than purity. When the seraphim were around the throne crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, they weren't saying purity, purity, purity is the Lord of hosts. They were saying something different. That that God is high and God is exalted and God is glorious and powerful and righteous. R.C. Sproul helped me with this word as well. He said, you might say that the holiness of God refers to His transcendence about how high and lofty God is. There's an infinite distance between God and us. So glorious and different and majestic is God that God told Moses, nobody can see my face and live. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. And I think the idea here is that God's essence is so pure that He radiates blinding purity to all who would attempt to gaze upon Him. Right? It's a little bit like looking at the sun. I know you kids have probably done this before, right? You, you go outside and you look at the sun and, and, and you look and what happens to your eyes? They start to water, right? And, 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 you, bl- and you blink. You can't even quite see, you know? And, um, and the, your eyes begin to hurt because of the glaring blight. That's what God, He dwells in unapproachable light. That's the idea. And the idea that there's nothing to darken the glow of His glory. It shines forth and, and radiates out. Transcendent purity. And nothing that's unholy can enter His presence. A great illustration of that comes in Leviticus chapter 10. I invite you to turn over there. Leviticus is primarily a book of of laws and regulations and things to do. And there are a few snippets, though, of some narrative which, which help. And in Leviticus chapter 10, we find the story of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons. Let's read the first three verses. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, <clears throat> placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near Me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. And really, to catch up the context of this, you need to realize that the last two chapters of Leviticus, in chapters 8 and 9, you can read about how the, the priests were set apart and consecrated for the work of the ministry. And in chapter 8, you see this elaborate ceremony where Aaron and his sons, right, including Nadab and Abihu, were washed with water. Right? They, they took this bath and they're clothed for the first time with these priestly garments. They were anointed with oil that was poured upon their head and came down. And, and even Psalm 133 speaks about what a precious time that was when oil came down upon the Aaron's beard and came down upon the edge of his robes. And it was a, a delightful time. It was a rejoicing time. Right? And they were ordained with blood placed upon their, their right ears and upon their thumbs and upon their, their big right toes. Blood was placed upon them. Signal, what, SR, you were telling me about this last night. What does that symbolize? Blood. 
Yeah, that's what he learned in one of his CDs we've given him. No, hear no unholy thing. And, and hands, do no unholy thing. With your toe, go no unholy place. I'm not sure if that's a symbolism. It makes a nice story. But it consecrates completely all the senses and all the things about Aaron and what he did. And finally even sprinkle with oil and blood upon their garments. So picture their garments being stained deep with red and, and, and covered with oil. That's chapter 8 of Leviticus. And his sons, Nadab and Abihu, were there witnessing this and, and watching this. And Nadab and Abihu received the same blood on their ears and, and the same blood on their thumbs and the same blood on their big toes, right? being dedicated and sanctified to the priesthood. And then in chapter 9, we see Aaron immediately begin to offer up his first sacrifice to the Lord as an ordained priest. And Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, were right by him making sure that he did everything exactly according to the command of God. They saw Aaron lift up his hands and bless the people. They saw the glory of the Lord appear to all the people. And they were giving him the blood, helping him sprinkle it upon the altar. And they saw fire come from heaven and consume the sacrifice. Saying that God was pleased with that sacrifice. You can read that even in chapter 9, verse 24. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And Nadab and Abihu saw what took place. They saw how Aaron had treated God as holy and done everything exactly according to command and how God came fire down and blessed them and consumed that sacrifice entirely. And as best we can tell, Leviticus chapter 10 was now Nadab and Abihu's first chance the temple. Perhaps it was on the very same day Nadab and Abihu come in and they offer a strange fire before the Lord. Now, there are many different guesses as to what they did wrong. Some say that Nadab and Abihu came into the Holy of Holies when they shouldn't have come because in Leviticus 16, verses 1 and 2, it, God warns Aaron, okay, only come this one day of the year lest you die. That may have been their offense. Some say that Nadab and Abihu were irreverent when they came into God's presence. That's the point of verse 3. Before all the people would be honored. But they weren't. And I'm going to make sure that people are. That may be. Some say Nadab and Abihu were drunk because the prohibition from God about Aaron in verse 9 says that when you come, don't drink strong wine or strong drink. Neither you nor your sons when you come into the tent of meeting so that you will not die. And some say, well, maybe Nadab and Abihu were drunk when they came in. Some say that they offered up, this is what I think is the most simple explanation of this, they offered up incense that was not according to God's specific instructions. It was a strange fire before the Lord. And maybe some of these other things went into it as well. We don't know exactly what they did wrong, but they knew what they did wrong. And God knew what they did wrong. And God killed them for it, demonstrating His holiness. And the lesson for all of us to learn comes in verse 3. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy and before all the people I will be honored. These words, God is saying that His presence demands respect. We can't come to God in a, a cavalier, flippant attitude. Let's be away with the notion of the Lord of hosts like a giant grandpa in the sky ready to tolerate all sorts of, behavior, sorts of behavior without confrontation, without concern. Yeah, whatever. No, God is very concerned for His honor and for His glory. So much so that Nadab and Abihu were killed instantly. And as a result, they become a testimony, a lesson for all of us. Let me look what it says. It says, Before all the people, I will be honored. And before all the people includes us. We are to honor the Lord. Listen to Psalm 99. It says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion and He is exalted above all peoples. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. Holy is He. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. Right? That's what it means when I say God is holy. It's what God means when He says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. He is so different from us that we must approach Him as His holiness deserves. 
We need to tremble before the enthroned one. We're to exalt Him as great and high and exalted in Zion. We need to worship at His footstool. And really, it's at the feet of God we belong, bowing prostrate before Him, knowing our sinfulness and knowing His holiness. Nadab and Abihu learned the lesson the hard way. They died before the presence of the Lord because they weren't approaching his, Him as His holiness deserved. And I just simply say, may we learn from His example. May we learn from the example of Nadab. May we learn from the example of Abihu. Right? It really leads us to our second point this morning. Right? You need to be holy. That's the command that comes back in Leviticus 19. You can turn back there. Leviticus 19, verse 2. You shall be holy. Now, this is what the book of Leviticus is all about. If you learn anything from Leviticus, you learn this point, that nothing unclean can enter the presence of God. In fact, if I just briefly survey the the book of Leviticus, you can understand this. The first ten chapters give highly detailed instructions about the sacrifices that were to be offered to the Lord. They had to be done exactly as the Lord commanded. The priests had to do exactly what God commanded. And the reason for doing was to obtain forgiveness from the Lord for the sins that were committed. And in fact, the only when the people obtained forgiveness were they acceptable before the Lord, were they clean in His sight. Ten chapters, God shares about how holy and pure you need to be. We're going to resolve your sin problem by this. And then chapters 11 through 15 concern themselves with what makes people unclean. He told the Israelites, you eat the wrong food, you're unclean. If you touch the carcass of an unclean animal, you're unclean. After you give birth, you're unclean for a month or two, depending upon whether it was a boy or a girl. If you have leprosy, you're unclean. If certain body fluids come out of your body, you're unclean. And you cannot come into the presence of God in those states. Chapter 16. Immensely important chapter of the book of Leviticus. Describes how everybody in the nation is unclean and everybody needs this sacrifice on the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the reason this sacrifice was offered was to atone for the sins of the people each year because there are many That's what the book of Leviticus is all about. It's how we as sinful men can approach a holy God. We need to be cleansed from all our impurities. We need to be forgiven of our sin. We need to be freed from our our guilt. We need to be clean in His sight. And and in different cases, it means different things. If you sin, you need a sacrifice. Or a woman, even after childbirth, needed a sacrifice to be made ritually clean. Remember when Mary and Joseph came into the temple, they offered up the The sacrifice, that was for Mary's ritual purity because she was unclean. In another case, it might mean a priest. You need to have a priest declare your skin clean. That's how you get clean, is to have the the, the priest examine whatever is on your body to make sure it's not leprosy. And you go back and you come back a week later and you go back and come back a week later. Finally, the priest will say you're clean and then you're clean. Or in another case, it might mean that you have to wash your clothes, bathe in water, And wait until evening is is the case of a man who is a discharge from his body. All different kinds of ways, right? And if you sinned, you need to bring a sacrifice to forgive the guilt of your sin. Even, catch this, if you sin unintentionally. Listen to Leviticus 5, 17 through 18. (coughs) If a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, there were a lot of things that God commanded to be done in Leviticus and in Exodus. And it says here, someone sins and does the things the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he's guilty and shall bear his punishment. He is then to bring to the priest a ram without defect from the flock according to your valuation for a guilt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his error in which he has sinned unintentionally and did not know it. That's true not only of individuals, it's true of the whole congregation as well. Listen to Leviticus 4.13. If the whole congregation of Israel commits error and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly and they commit any of these things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and they become guilty, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd for a sin offering and bring it before the tent of meeting. 
I mentioned before, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, to atone for the sins of the people. And Leviticus is filled with these kind of regulations to purify the worshiper. We can go on and on and on and on and on with example after example after example after example about how to be clean. But that's the point. It's the point of Leviticus. In order to approach the Lord, you need to be clean. You need to be holy. Every sin you commit needs a sacrifice. Every sin you commit needs to have a priest that will sacrifice for you. And even on top of that, your priest needs to be clean in order to offer up an acceptable sacrifice. In Leviticus 21 and 22, it speaks about rules and regulations and qualifications for a priest. And should a man be blind or lame or have a disfigured face or deformed limb or a broken foot or a broken hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or have any defect in his eyes or his skin, he wasn't allowed to be a priest. Because the point is that to come to God, you needed to have a worthy priest to offer up a worthy sacrifice that your sins might be forgiven, that you might be holy before God. Now, does that speak of someone? Does that speak about Jesus or what? Jesus was the perfectly holy priest. In fact, even in Leviticus, it says that most priests are chosen by men, but even Jesus was the God-chosen priest to come. In in Hebrews, it speaks about how the the priests had to offer up a sacrifice for themselves the Day of Atonement and then for the people. But Jesus was so pure, He didn't even need to sacrifice for Himself because He was already so pure to begin with. And then it wasn't just a sacrifice of bulls and goats. (laughs) The sacrifice that Jesus offered was Himself the perfect Lamb of God. And that is the sacrifice to which all these sacrifices point. And Jesus is the priest to whom all these priests point. And the great thing, though, about Jesus is that He wipes away our sin. Because it's interesting, as you look through Leviticus, it speaks about how a sacrifice is offered, He'll be forgiven. As a sacrifice is offered, you will be forgiven. As a sacrifice is offered, you will be forgiven. And yet with Jesus, the terminology changes a little bit. With Jesus, it's not just forgiveness. Okay, It's not just a, um, a, a, a covering. It's, it's not just um, a declaration. Jesus actually takes the sin away. Is how much better a priest Jesus is. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Gordy read this. I want to just expound it for us here a little bit. It's a great picture of the effect of just what Jesus has done. Hebrews chapter 10 says this. The law since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very former things, there you get that shadow terminology again, right? Can never by the same sacrifices which they continually offer year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away Sins. Now, you think about how these sacrifices were offered year by year by year. In fact, even the people of Israel, the time of the giving of the law, Leviticus, they had a million or two people, maybe, maybe two million people in the land. And if every sin required a sacrifice, how many sacrifices would they have each year? A million, maybe, if they carried the law to its completion, but that'd make them poor and maybe they didn't. Maybe they just said, there's too many here. And maybe that's why God even allowed for the Day of Atonement to offer up the one. But millions of sacrifices could have been offered. (laughs) But even if nobody ever brought a sacrifice for their sins, uh, every day a lamb was sacrificed in the morning and the evening. Every week on the Sabbath, two lambs were offered up. Every month, Eleven more animals lost their lives at various feasts. Hundreds more were sacrificed. Apart from people bringing sacrifices, this was just what God required. And I think that is a continual reminder again and again of the sacrifices that would come 
And as the Hebrew people would have seen this, right? It should have been ingrained upon their minds. This is futile. This doesn't satisfy. It's a little bit like eating. Right? You eat this morning and by noon, you're hungry. And you see the romantic chocolate desserts over here and you're hungry. And you eat them and by tonight, you're hungry. And tomorrow morning, you have some breakfast and lunch. And isn't it futile? We just keep going and going and going. <coughs> In the same sense, this, the sacrifice would go again and again and again. The people would say, this is futile. We'll never be satisfied. We'll never satisfy God with this. And that is the point here of Hebrews 10. The worshipers will never be made perfect. It's only enough to clean them up enough for the worship of God temporarily. But the next time they'd come to God, it'd be at the expense of a few more animals. And so, as Hebrews 10, verse 3 says this, In those sacrifices, reminder of sins year by year, again and again and again and again. (coughs) But here it is, verse 4. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Oh, they can cover sins. And as Leviticus says, oftentimes, he says, He offer up that sacrifice, he will be forgiven. They can forgive sins, but they can't cast them away. They can't take them away. You know, whenever I discipline my children, after applying my discipline, I always sit them on my lap, give them a hug, give them a kiss, and I always have this conversation, something like this. You guys know it well. I say, um, does Daddy forgive your sins? And they say, yes. And I say, can Daddy take away your sins? And they say, no. And I say, who can take away your sins? And they say, only Jesus. Because that's where Jesus, He offered one sacrifice for all time. Be able to take away sins, right? That's what Hebrews 10, verse 18 says, Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin because Christ's sacrifice was much bigger than the shadowy sacrifices. It was the ultimate sacrifice for all. And that is the point of the book of Leviticus. You need to be holy when coming into God's presence. And there are really two aspects of this holiness. There's a positional aspect of holiness and there's also a practical aspect of holiness. And we need to keep both of these sides in our mind, right? Positionally, right? Forgiven completely and whole before Christ. But practically, right? The way our, our sanctification works itself out. And that's important, just even in the way we live, that we would live sanctified, righteous lives, right? Because when your sins are wiped away, the Bible says your life will change. You'll be a new creature. God will transform you to walk in a holy manner. You don't change so that your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven and that will change you. In fact... Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. This is every bit a New Testament command. This is not just Old Testament. This isn't just for them that they needed to be holy. It's for us as well we need to be holy, right? 1 Peter 1, as obedient children, right? As children of God. As, as those who have been saved by His grace and come into His presence and know the forgiveness of God. As obedient children, he says this, Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, and then he quotes Leviticus 19 verse 2, You shall be holy for I am holy. You need to be holy. And I need to be holy. Because the writer of the Hebrews says it clear as day, Pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Because there are some things that disqualify you for the kingdom of God. First Corinthians 6, Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There is a practical holiness that God will work out in our lives. And if someone is a fornicator, God hasn't worked that holiness in your life and you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. 
There is a holiness that we need to have. Not, I'm not talking merit. I'm not talking about earning things. I'm talking about God transforming us and creating in us a holiness because we need to be holy for God is holy. And the great news of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is that these were what the Corinthians were. Such were some of you. But you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God and He transformed you no longer to be a fornicator, a idolater, a homosexual, or a drunkard, a reviler, or a swindler. See, because God will work His effect of holiness and transformation in our lives. I want to close with a, an illustration which helps show us how it is that God will sanctify us and purify us and make us holy, practically speaking. Positionally, in Christ, absolutely no condemnation for those in Christ. But for children of God... As obedient children, it will work itself out. There's a story that's told of, by Robert Munger called My Heart, Christ's Home. I know Gordy Bell has mentioned this to me before in the past. and It's a good story. He, he imagines his heart like a home in which Christ comes to visit. And the first place in which Christ visits is his library. And Robert Munger right, was delighted to show him of all the things that his mind was reading and thinking about until he really realized what his mind was reading and thinking about. And then he became a little bit ashamed Right? He noticed then when Jesus came in and began to look at the things his mind was dwelling upon, that Jesus told him, take the things you're reading and looking at, which are not helpful, pure, good, and true, and throw them out. Now put on your empty shelves the books of the Bible, fill your library with Scripture, meditate on them day and night, right? because that's the tool God uses to sanctify us and purify us. And after the library, he went to the dining room of the heart. The room of appetites and desires. And Mr. Munger served Jesus his favorite dishes, right? Like money and academic degrees and stocks and newspaper articles of fame and fortune and as side dishes. And to his great concern, Jesus wasn't eating. He said, Jesus, why don't you eat? And Jesus said, if you want food that really satisfies you, seek the will of the Father, not your own pleasures, not your own desires and not your own satisfaction. Seek to please me. And that food will satisfy you. And then Jesus gave Mr. Munger a taste of doing God's will. And he said, oh, what a flavor. There's no food like it in all the world. It alone satisfies. Everything else is dissatisfying in the end. Just God working in us, the process of sanctification. And they went then from the dining room to the living room where there were quiet, comfortable chairs and sofas and a fireplace and nice and warm. And Jesus promised to meet him in this room every day. And at first, Mr. Munger kept that up, his daily appointment with him. But due to the busyness of life, right, one particular day, he said, i got to get out the door and neglected it. And then soon to realize that Jesus' guest in his home was sitting there waiting for him, but he never went to the living room to commune with him and have fellowship with him. And when he came to Jesus and confessed his sin, Jesus readily forgave him and reminded him of the importance of fellowship with God to help in the process of sanctification. Here we go. From the living room, they went to the workroom. There's a workbench and some equipment, and Mr. Munger said, well, once in a while he plays around with the things and makes little gadgets, but really hasn't done much. And then Jesus said, well, relax your hands. Put your hands in mine. And Jesus began to work in that workroom some great things in his life, but only when yielded to him did that take place. And then they went from the workroom to the rec room of his heart. And Mr. Munger didn't want Jesus to see this room. Because in that room were his associations and friendships, activities and amusement that he was involved with. And so he made up some excuse why not to go in the rec room and succeeded in keeping Jesus out of that room. But was convicted in his heart about how those things are wrong. Shortly after that, a few days later, Mr. Munger found Jesus in the hallway. He said, Jesus said, there's a peculiar odor in this house. There's something dead around here. It's upstairs. I think it's in the hall closet. And Mr. Munger then knew what Jesus was talking about. Yes, there was a small closet up on the landing, a few feet square. It's the closet behind lock and key. Do you guys have a closet like this? <coughs> Let's get out of your heart. I know that we have a closet like this in our house. We have a storage room downstairs, which is a mess. And um, we, I, I built some shelves for Vaughn several years ago, and everything used to be there. And I tell him we got 
coats and we got stuff just all over the floor. And, and I told her recently, I said, Yvonne, you know, when are you going to clean that up? And um, she rightly rebuked me and said, well, I've not heard you come and say, when can be a day where we both can maybe work at this and clean this up? So someday, if you want to come and see our mess, you can come downstairs in our basement. And it is awful. But that is, that is what this is. The closet of the heart. It was behind lock and key in Mr. Munger's heart. I had two or three little personal things I didn't want anybody to know about it. I certainly didn't want Christ to see them. I knew they were dead and rotting things left over from the old life. Yet I loved them. And I wanted them so for myself, I was afraid to admit that they were there. And after some reluctance, he gave the key to Jesus and said, Jesus, why don't you clean out my closet? Because I can't do it. And she just said, exactly, you can't do it. Jesus walked to the door, entered in, took all the putrefying stuff that was rotting there, threw it away, and he cleaned the closet, painted it, fixed it in a moment's time. The power of Jesus, a life yielded to him. It was a relief to Mr. Munger who said, Oh, what a victory and relief to have the dead things out of my life. As life continued on, Mr. Munger said to himself, You know, I've, I've been trying to keep this room of my, this house of my heart clean. I start on one room, <clears throat> and as soon as I have that clean, right, there's another room that's dirty, and I, I go and I start cleaning this room, and, and the other room gets dirty, and he's tired of maintaining it, and he just can't. And he finally said, Jesus, would you come and really be the master of my heart? You've just been a guest in my heart, but you be the master of my heart. Let me bow the knee. Let me trust you. And Jesus said, that's what I came to do. You cannot be a victorious Christian on your own strength. That's impossible. Let me do it through you and for you. That is the way. And Mr. Munger soon handed over the title deed of the house to Jesus. And Jesus worked holiness in his life. And that's how this command of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, ought to work itself out. It's not the continual sacrifice. It's not the continual striving. It's the trusting the Lord to work His holiness in us. We might be holy before the Lord. As obedient children, we ought to be holy. Now, ultimately, our holiness to God, our path, is even the work of Christ in us. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. It's Christ's sacrifice that accomplishes all this. What the blood of bulls and goats could never do, God did in sending His own Son. We simply need to believe Him and embrace Him and be transformed by His power. And so I ask you this morning, in light of the fact that God is holy, are you holy? You stand before Him clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not having a righteousness of your own derived from the law, but that which is in Christ through faith? And if so, all you can do is really glory in your Redeemer. All you can do is just pledge your life to Jesus, who alone is all of our life. That's the message of the book of Leviticus. I trust it's been opened, expanded, pressed to your heart. May we live in light of the reality of these things. Let's pray. And Lord, I think of the song we'll sing here in a moment. I will glory in my Redeemer. Lord, I would pray that resounding from this congregation of people might come great glory and adoration and honor to You who carries us with eagle's wings and takes us to paradise. May we glory in the cross of Christ. And may we sing even after that, O Lord, You are my life. You are my life. God, because that is indeed the end of Leviticus. You're the reality of the shadows. And may we see the reality, embrace the reality, love the reality, and allow the reality to work within us to accomplish all Your good pleasure among us. How I long for this congregation to be filled with holy people who are obedient children, loving You, knowing You, and walking righteously because, even as you've told us, we shall be holy because you, the Lord, our God, are holy. May that be our heart's desire. May it express itself even right now initially in our songs and then in our conversations 
And then in thankfully eating from the potluck and then rejoicing with our family as we go home and giving great praise and honor to you even at work on Friday and on Monday <clears throat> we're back into the grind. May in every way you be exalted in our midst. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.